District of Conservation is sponsored by CFACT. To learn more about our sponsor, head over to cfact.org. Thanks for listening. I am really thrilled to have Tyler Friel from Tundra Talk Podcast and also a contributing writer to Outdoor Life on District of Conservation for this episode. Tyler, it is great to connect and to chat with you. Thanks for coming on. Yeah, thanks for having me. Talk about living in Alaska and what led you to explore outdoor riding. Well, um, that could be it could be quite the rabbit hole to jump down. Uh, I've lived up here since I was 16, so over half my life now. I'm 35 now, and uh, Alaska has just you know been home ever since I moved up here. And I've always been uh, half diseased for hunting and fishing and anything outdoors. So uh, this really is kind of a paradise for me. And uh, as far as outdoor riding, I mean, I, I always read read a lot of the famous outdoor writers as a kid and hunting magazines, fishing magazines, anything I could get my hands on. And although, you know, I hated English class and writing growing up, um, I ended up just basically falling into, into being able to work with outdoor life magazine pretty randomly, um, my senior year of college. And they were happened to be looking for someone in that was doing the kind of stuff that I was doing and liked doing to uh to do some digital digital writing for them and that morphed into doing videos and print writing and all kinds of uh pretty you know pretty diverse diverse stuff with them so you know it just kind of fell in my lap really and I've I feel like I've been able to improve over the years and uh, I really enjoy telling the stories and writing about writing about things that are of interest to me and and interest to, of uh quite a few other people as well and it goes to the point of having and valuing connections. How did you get an opportunity to start contributing regularly to Outdoor Life? I've had the pleasure of submitting a few articles to Field Instrument Outdoor Life too, but you contribute on a regular basis. I was very curious, like, was it a connection? Did it just fall on your lap? How did you, how'd you get to write for them? It was by being, by being kind of a smart aleck, actually, I was... I was goofing. I had one night, a three hour night class in college, my senior year. And I was goofing off and, you know, looking around Outdoor Life's website. And I saw at the time where you could, they had kind of a uh, a forum board on there and you could post your own pictures and stuff. And um, I posted a few of my uh, doll sheep hunting pictures on there. And then a few days later, got an email from one of the editors um, asking if he could do a digital story on me and then, uh, and, you know, hear more about my sheep hunting stuff. And, uh, and that turned into, well, what do you think about writing your own, you know, writing a story for us about something, you know, it was trapping or something like that. So I did that and they, behind the scenes, I didn't know that they happened to be uh, actively looking for someone to do kind of a backcountry remote hunting, um, type of content for them. And so really, I mean, I, it was not, not of any hard work of my own aside from doing what I like to do, but it ended up working out and, and that turned into a, you know, a very regular, turned me into a regular contributor over the years. And a lot of your pieces have been talked about and we'll get into that uh, shortly, but you also maintain a podcast Tundra talk where you talk about hunting, fishing, and trapping from an Alaskan perspective. What led you to go into podcasting? Because this is still a fairly new medium. I've been doing mine for about three years. Podcasting is still kind of new in a sense. And I was curious what led you to start yours. Well, I, it wasn't too long before because I've been doing mine for a little over three years now as well. And nice. it, and it, 
it wasn't too long before it was maybe less than a year before that that I even figured out what podcasts were. You know, I'm pretty <laughs> I'm pretty ignorant to a lot of the a lot of the you know whatever the latest thing is. So, but so I figured out what they were, and then it naturally gravitated towards listening to hunting podcasts and outdoor content. And as I did, um, I just noticed that there wasn't really anything I could find that was coming from um, that I could relate to as far as my perspective as an Alaskan. There was, you know, you you hear individual stories of people coming up here to hunt and, you know, talking about backpack hunting, the stuff that I like to do, but it never was really relatable, totally relatable to me. And I, you know, I thought it would be a pretty cool opportunity to, to talk about the kind of stuff that we like to do from the perspective of the people who just live up here. And Alaska is a special place, but it's, a, it's different when you're, you live here and just do it. You're here all year round doing all this stuff constantly, as opposed to just traveling up here to do this stuff or to, you know, to have your, have your trip. It's just a different kind of experience. And um, the other thing was I saw all these hunting podcasts and it still goes on to a degree. It seems like, you know, you get someone pop up and then everybody wants them on their podcast and they just circle around the podcast circuit and which is fine. It's not, not a big deal, but I reckon, you know, I know so many people up here that no one would ever even know about that have, you know, just as cool experiences and stories and a lot of valuable information that they can give to people. So, you know, all in all, that's kind of what got me started in doing it. Obviously I wish I had, I'd gotten on the ball, you know, four or five years earlier would be even cooler, but um, you know, it's, it's a very unique kind of thing. And I, it, it may be my podcast hasn't turned out maybe exactly like I expected it to, but that's kind of the cool thing about podcasts is there's no set rubric. And if people are enjoying listening to what you're putting out, then, uh, then you're not doing anything wrong or not doing too much wrong. Indeed. And I noticed too, that just in this wilderness space, there was just too much of the same content, like who's going to have the famous celebrity or chase this perspective or just like recapping hunts and how to's and those are fine and dandy. And certainly you can benefit from those, but I noticed, I mean, kind of a deficit too. I think fewer female voices. So I was like, okay, being a woman, maybe women will be comfortable talking to me. Um, different people who talk about and live conservation, but maybe people don't like their political views. So they would never speak to them. So they came on and, and have a platform here on my podcast too. And it's, it's like, now it seems like wilderness podcasts are super saturated. And it's, I noticed early on three years ago, when I first started putting out content, it was much easier to trend. And then now you just have all these different podcasts circulating and it's a lot harder now, even with a dedicated listenership. Yeah. And I, I, I could probably do a lot better at paying attention to a lot of the, the dynamics of it, but, um, it's, it is tough. And especially it, I think the toughest thing is making your, making your podcast stand out. You know, mm -hmm. I, I, some people get kind of discouraged that there, there is so many and it's in, in some ways a running joke, you know, oh, so we'll start, you know, everyone starts their own podcast, but I don't see any problem with it. If a person wants to do it and, you know, and people enjoy what they're, the content they're putting out and they stick with it, you know, the, the good, the good ones will, will naturally kind of rise to the top. Um, if that makes any sense. And as long as a person finds it fulfilling for them to do it, then, then, then that should be, you know, that's, what's important. I wouldn't, 
if if a person's just setting out to try and make money off of it right off the bat, then you're kind of shooting yourself in the foot because I feel like it's a platform where people really get a feel for who's be you know what's genuine and what's not. Yeah, and and I think you shouldn't go into it with the idea that you're going to make lots of money. It's very hard to monetize. And I, yeah. I think you can speak to the experience too. It's it's more so about putting content, not so much about making waves too much or getting famous, but it's just like adding to the dialogue, getting people to speak in a free form in kind of this uh, very kind of unpolished medium, kind of like radio, but a more sophisticated radio, unfiltered, where people can listen on the go, they can download episodes, they can listen on their desktop, and just kind of explore different ideas. It's kind of like a new dis- uh, form of discussion, <laughs> kind of better than yeah. social media. It's kind of this like burgeoning kind of podium for people who are serious about long dialogue or long form content, and they can go and listen. And no, it's, it's great. We have a proliferation. It's just me uh, joking in terms of like, oh, there's so many, but it's, it's, you know, yeah. it's just exploded. And I, I think information is, it's good. It, it's important. And everyone has different perspectives according to different region, state experience levels. So no, it's, it's all good, but sometimes you're like, oh my gosh, there's so many, like, how do I keep track of everything? There's some oh, interesting yeah. content. So it's like, you never know. And that's why I was so drawn to having you on the podcast because kind of from a public policy angle and from just a conservation angle, Alaska fascinates me a lot. And I haven't been there. I have a few friends that live there and I've followed people's posts and I've studied a little bit about it. And it's just such a different environment compared to the lower 48 and even Western states in the lower 48. I know Alaska has, I think the most federal land in the country. Mm -hmm. Uh, There's definitely the dynamic of energy production and there's certainly big game hunting too, often that is not really seen in the lower 48 per se. Like you guys are allowed to do grizzly bear hunting since the bears up there are not really seen as endangered. But talk about the dynamic of Alaska and why people shouldn't try to genuflect or maybe impose their will onto Alaska. And how can people understand Alaska before we talk about some issues? Yeah, I guess, and that's kind of, I mean, even that in in itself is a deep subject. I guess I would say, Overall, Alaska is, I would describe it as like almost like living in the United States. <laughs> I mean, obviously it's a state, but it's it's just different up here. There's there's things that'll kind of overwhelm a person when they come up here, you know, the vast size and space up here, um, the the logistics it takes just to get anywhere, you know, anywhere you know, back in, you know, back in the Eastern U S or, or even a lot of the Western U S it's, you're going from 10, you know, you're, you're traveling, you're driving, there's town, 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 town. Well here, you know, I live in Fairbanks, which is right in the middle of the state. Basically the closest other city is Anchorage, which is 350 miles away. And there's a couple, you know, tiny, tiny towns. It's just, a very where it's like we're li- basically like living on an island you know you're kind of isolated in the middle of this wilderness and uh you know that's something that kind of is is overwhelming to people i know it was overwhelming to me when i first came up here it's just a different a different place and the people who a lot of people who naturally gravitate up here are, are pretty independent minded people and and you know, we, we've there, and I think a lot of the people in lower 48 don't understand fully all the aspects of, of what, what we need and what we need to be able to do and, and deal with to, uh, to have a healthy economy and, and just 
make a life up here. So I think that that can, uh, you know, there's, there's that. And if I'm, if I'm making any sense here and then, uh, people it's it's easy for people in lower 48 who you know everyone want thinks of alaska as this giant park you know but and it is a giant like awesome wilderness but people feel maybe an or alaskans kind of resent the ownership that other people feel they have over it and the right they feel that they have to completely control everything that goes on up here um more so than we do if that makes sense no it does make perfect sense because you see just with public land debate, and maybe we can explore this a little bit through the podcast, but I think a lot of people are kind of selfish and they're like, well, everyone has to agree with my view of this or my perception of conservation. And I have no idea what Alaskans want. So I'm not going to personally impose my perspective onto Alaskans. I don't live there. I have no idea what goes on there. I, I take that back. I do kind of know what goes on there, but I don't live there. I'm not familiar. And it would be really imprudent of me to impose my will onto people. And I see that as a observer from the lower 40, as a podcaster, as a journalist. And I understand kind of what's heard locally on the ground is not often what conservationists want to see. I think an inconvenient fact for them is the fact of this equation of energy production, um, also the Alaska Permanent Fund that you guys have, and just so much yep. that goes into it. And I wanted to ask you about Anmar because we just saw the news that President Biden wants to pause that from transpiring, not surprisingly, per environmental review. You had written about ANWR in a perspective that I think a lot of Alaskans share about allowing for balanced use in the region. So talk about the complicated nature of that issue, perhaps some of the implications, and if it is as dangerous as some are billing it to be. Yeah, and, and it is kind of a complicated issue um, overall. In it's so easily manipulated to people that don't, that aren't educated on it and haven't been up there and seen it and, and kind of know what's going on. It's, it's a really easy thing to manipulate and it is manipulated. But um, when Anwar was, when Anwar, the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge was created, this area in the area in question that there, you know, we're, we're going to be issuing leases for is uh, area 102, they call it. It's a small portion of, of Anwar that's on the Arctic coast, just to the east of current like active drilling areas. And um, that area was not originally supposed to be part of Anwar, but um, I can't remember the story, how, how it went when, but the, the people at the last minute that were, were responsible for creating Anwar kind of as their own, you know, quote unquote, private, you know, research park. Um, they got that area included, but even it was, it was area 1002 was always designated as an oil exploration, oil, oil, uh, development area. It was not included in the wild in the wilderness area. So, um, generally the state of Alaska has kind of had a favorable view towards, um, exploring and drilling oil in that area. In the eighties, it was actually, the whole entire area was seismic surveyed where they drive trucks in the winter over and, and um, you know, send sound waves into the ground to survey, you know, what deposits they think are there. And so it's been already completely surveyed once. And they, uh, and then it's been in, the, I think it was 1984 maybe. And then they've also, you know, since then they've studied the impacts of that, of that seismic survey um, U.S. Fish and Wildlife has, and um, some ecologists have, but um 
now with this most recent, they were finally going to the, I think Congress had approved moving forward with these lease sales. And overall, I would say generally Alaska, the state is, is positive towards, towards responsible development of the area. I know the, the rest of the slope has probably the cleanest produced, like most responsibly produced oil in the country. And, uh, and this, you know, I don't see it as being any different, um, I'm trying to break this down in my head into like what different you know aspects to go aspects to go after because there's you know the perspective that's that's put out to the lower 48 you know as this is just this would be absolutely ruining the you know America's last great wilderness which it's really not a very big area and there's active drill pads you can see on Google Earth right adjacent to it and um Man, is I mean, is there any is there any specific aspects you you know? Man, there's just so much. There's yeah, one aspect. Uh, it's, yeah, rolling is rolling over in my head. There's just so many different directions I could go. With sure, it. I know because it's multifarious. But I think yeah. one contention to development in Anwar is the claim that caribou populations will be decimated. I think you also included it in your article. Oh, yeah. So could you speak to kind of that point? Is it true? Yeah. Is it false? What, what exactly is the reality? Um, it's pretty much in talking to, you know, talking to some state biologists, they, you know, they don't, they don't think that it's a concern for the caribou. And now when they put it, it was a big concern that, you know, the same arguments about, you know, impacting caribou calving and migration were a big concern with the original pipeline in the seventies and, um, the Prudhoe Bay oil field. But since that's been put in, it's been shown that the, the caribou actually seem to do better around that oil development like the the central arctic herd which is right it's you know its grounds are right in the middle of that that prudhoe bay field is right in the middle of it and the pipeline crosses the middle of their their range that herd exploded exponentially it went up from like uh, i can't remember that i'd be just talking all of my um the numbers it went from something like 70,000 animals up to like 600,000 or something like that wow. I, or or maybe no maybe that I'm thinking maybe a different herd there's been a lot of caribou issues pop up lately but the uh in, in the article I had written um I researched the act the numbers for the the central arctic herd and how they exploded you know grew exponentially and right now they're about about where they want them to be for a healthy herd now the herd in question with this little tiny chunk of Anwar is the porcupine herd, and you know a lot of the the claims are in their their citing concerns from the Gwich'in people, native people who typically are located on the south side of the Brooks Range. You know, a lot like a couple hundred miles from or over a hundred miles from this area. And they're concerned that the the porcupine herd calves in this area, and that's going to destroy their calving and 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 have a negative effect on them. And they're not going to be able to get caribou. But looking at actual calving data survey, those they haven't even really calved in that specific area for quite a while. And their overall calving grounds stretch, you know, from west of that area all the way east back into Canada. It's not like they have this one tiny spot that they the whole herd goes to in calves and and those caribou populations are affected by a lot of different things you know hurt you know that that porcupine herd crosses over with the central arctic herd and sometimes exchanges animals back and forth um 
you know, it really, I couldn't find any actual evidence that it was, that this, that this would affect the caribou. And that's, that's what I was looking for, you know, is it they're compared to a herd that exists, you know, flourishes right among active oil development, like a hundred miles away at the farthest, you know, depending on how, how far we're depending on where you're taking your marks from. Um, it's literally right next door and you have 40 years of evidence to look at and, and how see how those caribou um, react to being around oil development. And, uh, and it's really, it's just, it's not the issue that it doesn't seem to be the issue that people make it out to be. And I, I don't think it would be much of an issue at all as far as, as far as affecting the caribou, the, uh, the big, according to a, uh, uh, I think it was American ecological society research paper that I, that I read and I actually cited it in my my article on Anwar. Um, they, according to them, they they said the biggest impact of the entire oil exploration process would be a 3D seismic survey that they would have to do um, prior to any actual development. You know, actually punching the wells and that kind of stuff. You know, the impact would be minimal compared to what it could. They theorize it could be. Um, and they're citing, you know, erosion and some permafrost degradation concerns. But they also admit that if it's done under under the conditions that the regulations say it has to be done under, that it's not as big a concern, basically, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, 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 that was super concise and really put it into perspective for me. And I'm reading from your article, too. And you have a disagreement with Stephen Ronella from Meat Eater about how uh, if you develop here, it's blemished. It's the last great wilderness in Alaska. But you cited that there are collectively about 48 million acres comprising different national monuments, wildlife refuges that actually far exceed the number of areas dedicated to potential development in Anwar in this 1002 area that you cited and you also come through your art. I also come through your article, and I noticed that um, you also point to the fact that outdoorsmen in Alaska also care about their future and also like to have employment in these industries as an option. And they see balanced use as possible that you can balance obviously preserving things and then also developing a little bit. Could you share why that is kind of not really seen as a perspective or why that perspective is not being communicated clearly? Did, did Renella not take into account this perspective as well? Yeah, I would say he probably didn't. And he's coming from the perspective of, you know, a, a, a lower 48 resident millionaire that can afford to fly up here and, and access anywhere he wants um, whereas the, the situation for the people, a lot of the people that live here, you know, we, we choose to live here and, and Alaska is a resource extraction economy. Uh, and, and even if you're not working directly for the oil and gas industry, a lot of the other industries are, you know, how well they're doing is based on how well the oil industry is doing. And, uh, not to say that, not to say that, you know, a state shouldn't maybe be more diversified than we are but it kind of is the way it is. And I, there's a lot of passionate outdoorsmen and women who work in the oil and gas industry. And they're up there all the time seeing what goes on and they see the steps that are taken to, to, uh, to protect the environment and the resources and to, you know, the right away they give to animals. One guy was telling me that if, 
if a seagull makes a nest on a piece of equipment, they have to abandon the equipment till the chicks hatched and the seagulls have moved on. Like they, you know, they may have to spend half a million dollars getting another piece of equipment up there to, to replace it for the time being. Um, it's, you know, it's, it's almost to the point of absurdity, the, the precautions that are taken to, uh, to make sure that the, and that the animals flourish, you know, and, and, People cite, you know, all the, you know, nesting birds. Well, there's, there's geese and all sort of waterfowl and nesting birds everywhere up there, you know, right among existing, existing oil operations. So I think a big thing that people don't understand is, is just how, how current, you know, oil operations work and, and the, the measures they take to protect, to protect the environment up there. And as far as, um, and I, you know, his comments were, were basically saying that, if you didn't agree, you know, if you agree, no matter what, if you agreed with opening Anwar or exploring it, that's this little section of Anwar for oil, you know, then you were just greedy and, and that it would, you know, of course that it would spoil our last great wilderness. Well, you know, I think it's, it's, it's pretty arrogant to assume or make that, make that assertion that, that this development in this small area would, spoil our last great wilderness and to assume that you're you're greedy if you have other you know you don't you maybe have to come up with other ways to make your living up here and and facilitate you enjoying alaska because a lot of people that do work in those industries and and other industries up here choose to live here because we want to experience this state and that's the only way we can facilitate we can facilitate that and it's it's even for us getting tougher and tougher you know with um with regular you know in with even just hiring a, a charter plane to fly you out to some of these places to enjoy a remote hunting trip, the insurance fuel and, uh, and just operation costs of air charters are almost are, are becoming prohibitive, even for people who live here just to fly out on a remote moose hunt or whatever, when it's not an issue for a guy like that. And, you know, he doesn't even have to live here. He can still go do whatever he wants essentially. So it's kind of, a lot of people up here take that attitude. That's the attitude that everyone up here resents is this um, kind of, you know, you keep keep Alaskan Alaska out of Alaskans hands and just keep it at they want they want the state to be at their disposal, you know, forever without Alaskans and our needs and interests being considered, if that makes sense. It sounds pretty elitist, <laughs> like kind yeah, of yeah. carpet bagging, <laughs> not carpet bagging, but it's like people coming in and dictating how you can live and not live. And I, I think, and I urge people in conservation to do this and you don't have to be a supporter of big oil. Lord knows I'm really frustrated with the big oil companies going along with some of these crazy extreme climate proposals. I think the smaller organizations are a little better. There was actually a great, I don't know if you saw this, but a great video from a a Colorado-based uh, gas company calling out North Face. It was epic. I loved the little video that he did. Oh yeah. And so, like, I think even those of us who support oil and gas and can see balance use still being effective today, while we're able to do it, and and we should still be able to do it because it's cheap and resourceful and it's it's affordable for everyone across different economic strata. But it's like I've noticed this um, here in Virginia too. I've been to our elk country, and I think people. F- Maybe this is something Meat Eater doesn't focus on. I'm not entirely sure what their focus is on, but I look out for where balance use can take in, can take place for my podcast, for a video series I do through my reporting work. And I got to see that firsthand in Virginia's elk country, which is also coal country. And down there, in order to have 
elk flourish, you need reclaimed coal fields. And alongside those reclaimed coal fields are still operating well drills. And that's a big industry down there because it's a more impoverished region. It was once the height of the coal uh, industry in the seventies and with just regulation and just kind of the fear mongering against coal, it's gone downhill a little bit. The economic downturn of 2008 really almost killed and paralyzed the region from what I was told by the different locals there. And for them, they have to have balanced use and they need industry and while the all the while doing industry, they're able to also protect and conserve species and their local environment and everything works beautifully. And it's led to the facilitation in, of, of this elk program and just the explosion of elk uh, with their reintroduction to the area. So I think a lot of conservationists love to lecture, love to tell different states how to do things, but they don't kind of put the shoes on of the people who work in oil and gas, who also are sportsmen. I don't know why we're trying to alienate a lot of people in our industry who just happen to work in energy. I think it would be a mistake to exclude them from the conversation. I'd rather work with them than people who want to erase hunting from existence. I think it's a mistake not to understand. And I would encourage everyone to go see how different processes are made and how they actually prioritize conservation too. And I'm going to be doing that as well. That's kind of an aside, but I think it is kind of callous for them to to say like, well, you can't do this because we need to protect this. But in fact, you can do both. You can protect and also protect people's livelihoods. There's a lot of, it's just a messy issue. There's a lot of patronization that goes on. Um, you know, I'm not even myself. I don't, I don't have a problem that people disagree with me and they don't think, you know, they don't think that we should, we should develop Anwar. That's kind of beside the issue. The issue, it's not the issue that I have with some of these attitudes. It's that elitism where if you don't agree with us, then you're wrong and you're just a greedy a-hole, you know, and that's essentially what, what was said. And, um, you know, a lot of these companies that are making, that were making these propaganda type posts, you know, they keep references, referencing, oh, standing with the, you know, the Native American population up here. And, uh, well, they, but they ignore the fact that the only, the only, um, native native community that is with actually within that area 1002 they want it they want the development and they actually tried to get permits to do some exploration on their own behalf and it was found out uh, i can't remember what month it was when it came out but the uh it was the village of kaktovic um is very positive towards drilling and you know they and they see the caribou like they're right there they know exactly what's going on it's not these arbitrary you know, maybe what if on the other side of the mountains this happens? Um, but they are generally for drilling, and they're upset that no one listens to them. You know, these companies jump all over and patronize, you know, native groups that that agree with their agendas, but they ignore the people who don't, whose lives are you know would be, you know, drastically affected by by whatever development or not development. And this village of Kaktovic had actually applied for permits to do some exploration. And it was found out the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, I think they intentionally sat on them until it was too late for them to be able to do this polar bear survey um, that had to be done a certain amount of time before they could approve the permit, et cetera. So basically, um, they just sandbagged, the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service just sandbagged them until it was too late for them to get the permit. If that, you know, if, if that all, if the way I explained that makes sense, um, it's just not yet, you know, people like to, and it seems to be 
all too all too common these days you know people will take in groups that that agree with their agenda but they ignore the same similar types of groups of people who don't agree with their agenda yeah people underestimate actually the sheer number of native groups or native organizations who support oil and gas exploration on public lands there was the ute tribe in utah that got an yeah. exemption that initially was um, denied a permit to continue exploration when President Biden put the moratorium on future and I think even on some existing public land gas leases. And if you have a connection to any of them, I would love to talk to them as an aside. I think that'd be super fascinating, but th they never, you're right, they never get profiled because it's inconvenient. Just the conclusion that you would reach from talking to them like, oh, this native American tribe actually supports oil drilling. Oops, inconvenient. I don't want to talk about this. Like this is too much. So they can yeah. be very selective on how to present the issue. Of course, like anything, you can frame something one way or another without really being partial or impartial, excuse me, to the cause, like well-rounded. So yeah, it's unfortunate that though, that perspective does not get shared. Yeah. Well, and it's extremely unfortunate. It, it's because it's, you know, they, the, these, these entities will play up the aspect of this is how the native people feel when really that's not their interest at all. They could care less what, what they feel like they're just using them and their, you know, a particular group stance to forward their own agenda. You know, they don't, they don't really give a, they don't care what, what those people think or they, or they wouldn't be, wouldn't be doing the things that they do, that they do. They're, they're largely engaging in virtue signaling, I think yeah. <laughs> with respect to these different issues. And it's so crazy kind of economically, I, I just remember reading that all these banks have refused to do any drilling in Anwar. And it's just so crazy, just the narrative that they've been able to spin on this and just to fear monger and to exclude certain voices. So I'm glad you're able to catalog these issues and come share it with me on the podcast. Another issue you focused on was the recent rule proposed by the Department of Interior to close off millions of acres to caribou and moose hunting. And a lot of public lands advocates were largely silent on this until your article made an appearance. Could you speak to this? And do you have an update on that? Has has the department listened to public feedback? Do you know when we'll be able to know about their final decision on that issue? I th I think I, I heard that the uh, that the decision on this, which is I can't remember the number of it, uh, but it's wildlife special action action request um, twenty one dash something. But it's uh, I think they're going the the federal subsistence board is going to make the decision, I think, on June 16th here. So real soon. But so what happened is this special action request is a basically rule proposal, regulation proposal by a regional advisory council, um, which in this as far as state state wildlife regulations, um, it's it's governed by the board the board the state board of game and there are re, there are regional advisory committees which are made up of you know elected local people of this committee to um give input um to the board of game when making regulations and they can even individuals can draft request you know proposals but um these these advisory committees will will do the same thing and have a little bit more sway maybe with the board of game anyway this is a little different. It's on the federal level and it's a subsistence advisory committee. So it's a similar type of thing, but they're, they're addressing the federal subsistence board. So in a lot of Alaska, we almost have two sets of rules, which the state is supposed to 
be managing the wildlife and setting regulations and all this, but the feds and through ANILCA, I believe it was, um, have this federal subsistence board to look out for the subsistence needs, you know, in theory, to look out for the, the subsistence needs of rural Alaskans, which is understandable. There's a lot of people that live in very remote areas that still do need to, you know, be able to subsist in a way off the land and, and get most of their protein from meat and fish and, and, and other, other sources. But, um, so this request, it's, it's from the Northwest committee out of, uh, you know, basically out of the Cotsview area. And it was to close, um, close moose and caribou hunting to, um, non-federally qualified subsistence users, which essentially just means anyone that doesn't live in the area locally, um, it closes moose and caribou hunting to them from what was it, August 1st through September 30th, which is the prime hunting season. Now, you could, in theory, go hunt in these areas in uh, in 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 uh, residents could with the open season because it's a year-round season for caribou in the overall area, but it basically eliminates all the traffic coming through in the prime hunting season. And this would be in effect for all federal lands and units 20, uh, 23 and 26A, which I think I, I had it written down because <laughs> I wrote an article about it, was like something like 60 million acres of, of public land that would be closing. Now there, you know, the reasoning behind this supposedly is it is that air traffic and hunters for non-local hunters are disrupting keeping disrupting the caribou migration keeping them from coming through um where they had been coming through in recent years and uh yeah that's basically it in a nutshell although there there hasn't been any even the the studies that have been done show that that hunters aren't having any effect on the caribou population it's you know weather it's you know a little bit to do with weather um and some other factors but it's not people that are causing this that are causing this change um and a lot of it's rooted in a long time a long time you know conflict between uh local and non-local users is what is what the issue basically boils down to indeed and I mean, I don't do any uh, caribou or moose hunting whatsoever, but I saw it as like an attack on public lands. And we traditionally see people who say, well, this is an attack on public lands or that's an attack on public lands. They were largely silent until your article came out. And that worries me, especially as we have, you know, seen kind of the first inklings of this new secretary of interior. It was weird to me that both of your senators, the Republicans voted for her confirmation. I, I have no doubt they were pressured by some native interest to vote for her. Do you think they regret maybe, and I'll hopefully get a chance to talk to Senator Sullivan about this at some point. Do you think they regret their support of her? And how would you rate her assessment, especially as it relates to Alaska issues or maybe just greater conservation and hunting interests? Do you have an assessment um, of her so far? Uh, I mean, a limited one, I would say I, and she worries me big time, especially with her, you know, her stances she's taking against trapping on public land. Um, and I think that actually, in, you know, in New Mexico, as far as it goes, that's where she's from. And I think that trapping did get actually banned on public land in New Mexico mm -hmm. recently. Um, I think that went through. So that's extremely concerning. 
and it's just yeah i mean but my overall i i don't think it's going to be very favorable for a lot of our interests up here i don't you know i don't know what they were thinking why they chose to to confirm her whether or to vote to confirm her um i i think murkowski murkowski needs to go but um i as far as sullivan i don't know why he voted for her i mean i always hope want to hope for the best and hope she actually does end up doing a good job but you know i think a fair bit of skepticism is healthy and um this uh yeah pe- you know people are a lot of the entities that are you know supposedly all for protecting public lands and access you know they they tend to look favorable on some of these politicians that aren't necessarily really favorable to you know to our lifestyle and um I'm just interesting to see what's going to happen with this Northwest Alaska thing, because what it boils down to is locals don't want non-locals there. So it's, it's a move to lock up all that land. And it was already done on over a million acres um, in, in uh, central Alaska, south of here in unit 13, they pushed that through this winter for an area of unit 13 um, that, you know, is a road accessible area where a lot of people could come caribou hunting but um, so it's unfortunately setting a precedent and it seems like a lot of these, you know, some rural entities, you know, for their own reasons are pushed to keep outsiders out. It's nothing new. And it's kind of something that a lot of people don't talk about because it's, it's can be difficult to do it in a politically correct or non, you know, you don't want to, I don't want to sound like you're um, insulting anybody or talking down to anybody but it's a very real sentiment and i kind of on one hand i understand why but on the other hand if it's all our land it's all our land too and we should be able to use it as well um so yeah this could set a very pretty pretty bad precedent for um for for locking up just tons of land up here that um we should otherwise be able to use there's no reason not to which completely defeats the purpose of a public land ethos because you know this very well with certain tracts of public land as the more restrictive it becomes to certain activities, the more actually sportsmen and women are excluded. This happens with national monument designations. It'll be really interesting to yeah. see what they do with these in Utah, Bears Ears and Grand es- and Escalante Staircase. And you see a lot of public land supporters cheer those on, but you've seen in different states. Yeah. That's another uh, you know a thing up here that, which it always put me on kind of edge, even from the very get-go, about organizations kind of like BHA, who just how cozy they are with these federal agencies. Because we, you know, and, and an agency is what an agency is, but depending, in, there's been a lot of conflict up here and a lot of restriction. Um, especially with the National Park Service, they seem to be the worst. And but even you know U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service and sometimes BLM will you know they they regulate to keep people out of the land is is the general consensus. Now it's not always what's going on, but there are there it has been a lot of cases of that and a lot of kind of pretty egregious stuff that's gone on over the years. So people up here are pretty pretty skeptical of, of the, the the feds and when they're kind of showing themselves as complacent to potentially as complacent to things like shutting down, you know, shutting people out of this area for this amount of time. I mean, that's, that's a way that they can, you know, 
have their, you know, realize their dream of making Alaska their own giant private park, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> at least it, that's our, that's our perspective. But some of this is just my, the way I feel about things, but, um, or the way I see things, but it's, it's a very real perspective and I'm not the only one that feels that way. It's a legitimate perspective to have. And it's not just in Alaska. I think what we saw under the Obama years, and I remember starting to pay attention towards the end of his second term, just what he was doing, his policies specifically out West, just creating this friction among regulators and private property owners. We, I guess we'll see a similar move, I guess, to preservation again. And I know people don't like hearing this, but I think for the most part, this last administration, the Trump administration was pretty friendly for the most part to sportsmen and women having been able to have dialogue with then secretary Bernhardt speaking to different people. I had several meetings in the department of interior with one of their outreach people, and they always wanted to hear from sportsmen's perspectives. I haven't really seen much. They're touting this 30, 30 plan and saying we have the support of sportsmen and women, but that could be changed. They could just put out something right now, an initial draft and then say, okay, well actually we listened more so, and we're going to exclude these provisions from, you know, respecting private property rights, respecting hunters and anglers. And so for me, I feel like we're going to see kind of what happened under the Obama administration, but even escalated more. That's what I'm worried about because they have the ear of these preservationist environmental groups who don't generally like hunting. You have the NRDC, you have Sierra Club, you have the League of Conservation Voters, which are now trying to get political and trying to remove different mechanisms from the Senate and whatnot. But it just doesn't seem to me that sportsmen down the road will have that perspective. I would love to be wrong, but that's just my cynical political nature, having seen just the differences between administrations, seeing more sportsmen coming to the table and really having a voice, regular sportsmen too, who never really thought they could work with the government. Um, I think they're going to lose out on that opportunity and they're going to appeal to just different interests that may agree with them because they're progressive. Yeah. Yeah. No. And and like you mentioned at the end, at the end of the Obama administration, they really, they, in, in installed a bunch of regulations that were basically intended they they re, they reduced a ton of opportunity um for hunters here you know on federal land and it's a lot and it was designed to undercut the state's predator management some of the state's predator management levels and they politicize it and turn it into this big you know um um propaganda campaign essentially to to make it look like everyone here is just a bunch of savages um but yeah unfortunately you know and that got that got rolled back over when the trump administration came in and overall i mean i think i i would say that our you know it wasn't any major changes aside from rolling that back but our our situation or opportunities got better you know with the last administration and it and, you know, it's just not going to stay that way. And I think they're I, I would not be surprised if you're if you're right. And they they go even harder charging back the other way um, here in the next few years. So I think it's going to be a fight for sure. Yeah. And also another battle that's going to take place and probably divide conservation circles is whether or not do you have to sacrifice second amendment for public lands. Can you support both? And I wanted to ask your thoughts on that because we have seen people say, well, public land should come before second amendment. Second amendment should come before public lands. Where do you fall on that pendulum? Oh, I think if you, you give up your second amendment, you're not going to have public lands for much longer um, is my personal feelings on it. And that's another stickler you've seen in several hunting related organizations and entities you know 
and to be fair, it, it, you know, it's without doing, you know, all the research, it's kind of, you know, my conspiracy theories, but just watching what's unfolded and how these things have morphed from, you know, uh, we're all about public lands. And then you, and then people find out that some of these, these companies and media companies and organizations are getting a lot of their money from people from organizations who also fund anti-hunting and anti-gun um, organizations and measures. And then, you know, people start piping up, you know, calling them out. And then it's, oh, well, we're hunting. We're, you know, we're, we're a hunting company. We're hunting. Of course, we're not anti-gun. Well, maybe anti-gun doesn't mean what they're saying it means. It's, uh, and then now, you know, you get, you got, for, you know, guys, former chairs, chairs of BHA going to, you know, writing books, anti-gun books and joining, uh, you know, gun control type organizations and it's like it's like everything's just being brought to the front being brought to bear you know it's it's even the age-old you know argument of people telling you you're crazy if they think you're coming to take if you think they're coming to take your ar-15 and then you know immediately as soon as as soon as the the administrations roll over they've got bills to do just that mm -hmm. <laughs> it's it, it, you know they've been telling you what they're going to do but you know we maybe it's you don't want to believe that it's true or you want to think that you're just, you're just being crazy, but um, it's true. Think, They're I open. Think there, I think there's been very real efforts to change what hunters are, change who hunters are and change, you know, morph hunters perspectives and kind of split us on, on, you know, the second amendment, which really has nothing, you know, has nothing to do with hunting. You know, people will say it does, but it, it really doesn't. And, mm -hmm. uh, you know, I, and everything, of course, is in the, you know, on the Second Amendment side is everything's, of course, in the name of preventing violence. Well, there's a lot, you know, <laughs> I'm just preaching to the choir here on, on all the, these arguments of what there's a lot better things we can be doing to prevent violence and, and kind of treat what's wrong with our with our society rather than just go after go after guns, because it's not really about the guns. It's about the control. It absolutely is. I mean, I came from California. I've seen what they do when they promise you something and they export it nationally. They mean it. <laughs> They're very serious. Yeah. You should never you should never downplay what a politician says. They usually follow through with their intention to ban something. And I think it's also in certain Western states, people just become comfortable because in let's say in Montana, they never really abridge uh, gun rights. But yeah then they see like, oh, nationally, this is happening. This is the rhetoric. And you really, I don't see it being feasible to advance, even with executive action, just because of the sheer number of people buying firearms and purchasing them. And I think maybe as it becomes more normalized, whether people are purchasing rifles or handguns, I'm hoping it normalizes use of suppressors and other facets as well, just because that's some aspect we have not really talked about much and they're not really used in crime. So there's no justification to regulate them further with the national firearms act. And it's, it's really used for a comfortable shooting experience. I've had great success using suppressors and hunts and even recreational shooting. And, but the only connection, I wouldn't say it's a, a second amendment protection hunting by no means it is, but the only connection guns and hunting have apart from their usage is the fact that they're joined together by the Pittman Robertson act. So guns yeah. and ammo pay for conservation funding in this country. And I think people forget that. <laughs> and yep. an argument we can make is gun control 
will actually cut your conservation funding. So goodbye environmentalism, goodbye these critical programs if you see that. I, I wish people make that argument more. I, I've made it, but I hope others do too. And is there anything else you want to plug in, Tyler, from Alaska or just your thoughts on current events? Um, anything else about hunting? Or, or I really love, by the way, that your governor now and your tourism bureau are starting to advertise here in the lower 48, here in the... DC market. I see ads every day for Travel Alaska. Oh, what? Nice. Yeah, yeah. So it's starting to play here. What do What do you say as a pitch for people to come to Alaska? I think now people are coming and traveling to Alaska. I've seen like several people in my orbit, friends of mine. I know a, a couple that just got engaged in Alaska in Denali National Park. I think on one of oh, those cool. little planes. And so, what is the pitch for people coming to Alaska? Why should they come visit Alaska? Boy, there's there's more reasons than I've got. You, the one thing I would say is that don't be surprised if you don't want to come back. <laughs> I know more. I know more than one. I know more than one. More than one person who came up here on a two week vacation and then uh, flew home, packed their bags, and came back where wow. they just never left. <laughs> That's insane. You know, it's, it's a it's a beautiful like overwhelming place that everybody everybody should see. You know, and we've. Uh, yeah, it's been, and it's good to hear that they're they're advertising the tourism like that because that's another that's aside from mineral extraction or resource extraction, tourism is our biggest you know our our other big industry and and COVID really put the damper on on that you know those of us who weren't directly affected by it were you were having a good time over the last year with cheap gas and running around but it uh, it it it's catching up and it will, you know, we, we need a good healthy tourism industry to, to keep our state doing good. So yeah, it's uh it's a perfect time of year now, you know, all the leaves are popping, it's warm and uh, yeah, plenty of stuff, plenty of stuff to do up here. So. It looks like an amazing state. It's on my list of places to visit. I hope I get to visit at some point in the future. I'll even t- endure that 11 hour flight <laughs> to come up there yeah. at some point <laughs> in the future. And you should connect with my friend, Cody McLaughlin. He just moved just outside of Wasilla. Great sportsman. I think you guys would hit it off really well. And I, cool. I have no doubt you could benefit from more friends. He's also kind of a center right person in the conservation space. So I have to connect you guys at some point, but where could people follow you, listen to uh, Tundra talk and get connected on and plugged into Alaska issues better. Uh, my, uh, I, I'm reasonably active on Instagram. My handle is just uh, the Tyler Freel. Um, I uh, fairly regularly have have uh, digital pieces on OutdoorLife.com, which Outdoor Life they did just go to uh, to digital issues there, which is a little sad. They're not doing print this year anyway. Um, but I have some writing in that. They actually did just the issue that just came out yesterday is um an alaska issue and i have some writing in there and uh my podcast is just called tundra talk podcast it's on itunes and pretty much all the podcast apps uh it's a little rough around the edges um a little irreverent sometimes but uh just is what it is we try to be ourselves and and uh you know tell some stories and present some present some useful information for people who are interested in hunting in alaska or hearing about it Authenticity, I think, really is what helps stand out. And that's what I was really largely drawn to because you're very different. You obviously have an Alaska perspective. You hold no bars. Well, that's a nice way of saying it. <laughs> no, it's, it's, I mean, as a compliment, truly. And, you know, there are some others who stick out like you too, like Cody Rich uh, from Montana, also Lone Star Outdoor Show 
um, cable Smith from Texas. So you, you all three to me, like have such a unique brand and you have a really decent following in, in among different followers. So no, I, it, it really is unique. And I, I want to encourage my followers to, to connect with you and follow you. And it's been so informative, just learning about Alaska. And I hope at some point we can connect in person. If you come down to the lower 48, or if I come up to Alaska at some point, or I don't know if you are a part of any outdoor association, but you should join POMA if you're wanting to kind of expand your horizons and interact with like-minded people too. Yeah. So thank you again, Tyler. This has been a lot of fun. Yeah, no problem. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to the show. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Make sure you're following us on your preferred podcast player. We like to recommend Apple Podcasts because Apple is where most of our listenership hails from. So if you head over to Apple, subscribe, comb through some episodes, and leave us reviews, we'd be more than appreciative of your support in that manner. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter to never miss a beat nor a guest announcement. And you can connect with me personally on my social media feeds, all of the Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram links that I have are all denoted by blue check marks. Really easy to find me. So engage with me there. I'd love to hear your thoughts. If you want to recommend yourself for the show as a prospective guest, I'm all ears to hear and sift through different inquiries. 